to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the new snow for the week of July 20th. As usual, I'll try to cover about six stories in roughly 20 minutes, give you the highlights of the stories and any commentary I can throw in there. The first story, let's get to it, comes out of Healthcare IT News, July 17th, 2020. UC Health creates a unified data set to aid COVID-19 researchers. So according to a UC Press statement, they have a data set now that comprises more than 640 million data points drawn from electronic health record information, allows researchers to quickly compare previous individuals' treatments. This type of data set may provide a window into patterns they might not otherwise have been able to, to identify. That came from one of the chief data scientists at the University of California. They have six health systems at UC Health, it looks like, five of which are academic medical centers, and they cover a whole chunk of California, and I believe a large chunk of uh, Medi-Cal, which is their Medicaid pr uh, program. And there is a quote in here that 40% of their uh, of UC patients are uninsured or covered by Medi-Cal, which can complicate their access to treatment and access to care. So they go on to say that a significant benefit of the data set is that it gives insights into clinical practices in much closer to real time and is representative of a broader patient population than any one organization could have on its own, which is critical for research during the pandemic. This kind of approach to aggregating and sharing data is what we need to create more accessible, large, long-term data sets that help us avoid a rush to conclusions based on questionable correlations and selection bias. In the beginning of the epidemic, I don't know about your institution, but I, I heard and even saw in some in my institution that providers were doing their best they could with limited information, but there was a lot of guessing going on. Should we anticoagulate? Should we not? Do we use hydroxychloroquine? Do we not? And we didn't have data. Now we have lots of data. The problem is those da that data sits in little isolated silos. Now I know EHR vendors are bringing together data and I really don't think that's a space for the EHR vendors. Honestly, make good software, but let the academic medical community take this on. That's what they do. I'm a community doc. I know that this is not my role to take on, but I am certainly willing to get our data into the hands of those that can use it for research, de-identified of course, and let's let's try to find those little pearls of wisdom. Because I think real-time data and understanding what's working and what's not in these large data sets is the future. That's where we need to be. The pushback that we'll see on this is there really is no such thing as de-identified data anymore. If you can pretty much recreate uh, someone's hospitalization, you may very well be able to figure out who, who they are. So the more data points you have, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to identify who that person is. So that's always a challenge, but I think in terms of helping us in the pandemic, this is essential. Uh, next quick article 
bipartisan House bill would enshrine telehealth rule changes and enable wider use. So this is a this is July 16th, the Protecting Access to Post-COVID-19 Telehealth Act. This was put into the House of Representatives on Thursday, and here's some of the highlights. So they're eliminating the geographic and originating site restrictions on the use of telehealth and Medicare and establishing the patient's home as an eligible distance site. Thank you, about time. Next, preventing a sudden loss of telehealth services for Medicare beneficiaries by authorizing CMS to continue reimbursing for telehealth for 90 days beyond the end of the public health emergency. So as you know right now, every 90 days, it's possible that they could cut the cord and declare the emergency is over and then telehealth would go away because all the emergency provisions are tied to that. So this is a request to keep it going for at least another 90 days. Let providers react and adjust. Let patients react and adjust to the new realities post-COVID. It doesn't sound like we're anywhere close to that yet, so I'm not really thinking anyone's declaring this emergency over. But it's an election year, and you never know what could happen in an election year. Uh, let's see, next is making permanent the disaster waiver authority, enabling HHS to expand telehealth in Medicare during all future emergencies and disasters. Now that line caught my attention. Telehealth is not just for emergencies. Let's put in place the tools that we need, and then you don't have to worry about delegating that authority. So my two cents, let's make it right up front, and then we don't have to worry about it during a disaster. And they are requiring a study on the use of telehealth during COVID to evaluate the costs, uptake rates, measurable health outcomes, racial and geographic disparities. And I think that last point is key. I've talked about this before. The people who are not getting access to telehealth are those who do not have access to broadband, and that tends to be minorities and people who live in rural communities. And now it's not just, oh, it's an inconvenience, you can't stream Netflix, it's you can't get healthcare. And we need to do something about that as a country, which is to get broadband out to all parts of the country. And I can't wait for the government to put some pressure on Verizon and Sprint and whatever others are out there, AT&T, and the cable players and say, look, you want to, whatever it is your next expansion is going to be, fine. But oh, by the way, you're going to go put a cell tower up in the middle of nowhere but there's five little farmers who live out there who need to be able to get their health care. So we also have to find cheaper ways of getting this done because right now it's incredibly expensive to run fiber. But that being said, I think this uh, bill, it's another bill that's out there. There's been a bunch of talk about this. Congress will do something is my prediction. Whether it goes far enough and deep enough, only time will tell. Next article. RWJ Barnabas Health forges ahead with remote EPIC implementation. So they had predicted that they would have a 40% decrease in productivity because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what they're talking about are the teams that are helping them get ready for their EPIC go live. They're taking a bunch of different EHRs. They had a merger and now they're all moving to EPIC. And so it's a pretty big event for them. And then COVID comes along and disrupts everything. They were trying to have, it looks like 62 subject matter expert work groups and councils from across the health system that includes nurses and physicians and pharmacists, and they're working on the workflows, identifying 
the best practices, it sounds like, which is what we should all do prior to an implementation. Don't just take your existing garbage and, and implement it somewhere else. Clean it up, make it right. This is your opportunity to do it better and then do your, your implementation. So COVID interrupted them. They sent their IT staff home to work from home. They got rid of their central coordinated IT source and expected a huge drop in productivity. Well, guess what? It went the other way. They had a 40% increase in productivity and a couple of things that sounds like it led to that. Number one, I think people are finding you can work from home and get a lot done. I know I do. Uh, the dogs don't particularly like that I ignore them, but I've got work to do and we do get work done at home. And I think the other thing is that they're realizing is because of COVID, people are moving, it seems, with more, uh, more focus and they're moving faster. And so productivity seems to be at least as good, if not faster. It was amazing the things that we did in the first eight weeks of the pandemic. Now, the, in some areas, the pressure is off and things are going back to normal, and that's probably a good thing. But with focus, it shows that we can get a lot done very quickly. And that's what uh, Barnabas, RWJ Barnabas is finding here, is they have some time pressure. They've got to get some things done. And yeah, some of the doctors are busy with COVID and can't break away to attend their workshop, but uh, they're saying that the business office, well, they're a little bit slower and they do have time. Fine, let's go ahead and shift gears and focus on the business units right now, and we'll come back and pick up the clinical units when there's a break. Great stuff, love what they're doing, and I think there's lessons in there for all of us. Next one, HHS directs the CDC to put COVID-related hospital data back on its website. And I read this out of, I think it came out of Jamie or somewhere, and I was like, what in the world is going on? The White House told Health and Human Services to take over the COVID data, it sounds like. So it was going to the CDC. I guess there was some criticism that it wasn't being published fast enough. And so HHS said that they were going to take it over. And now it looks like they reversed course a couple of days later. And the CDC reports up to the HHS. So the HHS certainly has the right to do that. But uh, it just all seemed a little weird. HHS had told hospitals to stop reporting the data on coronavirus hospitalizations to the CDC, saying the agency was posting the information too slowly. HHS, the parent department of the CDC, said it would manage the information instead. Now, on, then on Thursday, it went back to the CDC and said, you guys put the data back up. So, I believe the CDC has a very important role in this, whether they're showing the data or HHS shows the data, I don't care. But many of us are looking for clinical information from the CDC, particularly when it comes to information to give patients. I don't wanna to have to go and recreate that data. The CDC is putting it out and we're all singing the same tune. Everyone's on the same message when we're using that CDC information. So I think there is value there. I'm glad to see they're back reporting on data. It's kind of what they do. Next article comes out of Health Catalyst. And July 16, 2020, achieve data-informed healthcare in eight steps. So Sam McCutcheon, I think it is, he's an analytics engineer, I guess, for Health Catalyst, wrote this article. 
and it just triggered a couple of thoughts in my mind. I'll give you a couple of highlights first. The process of becoming data informed is complex. It requires a health system to take data in its raw form and transform it into intelligence that should lead to action. Transforming data into intelligence is invaluable in healthcare because it is a reliable and repeatable way to identify areas for opportunity and improve outcomes. I'm not gonna go over the eight steps. To be honest, you know the eight steps. Then the general, uh, the general principle here is that don't have scope creep, define what you're gonna be measuring, measure it, have your KPIs, and then look at benchmarks. Now you've got insight and now you're moving towards an action plan based on that data. So we do this, we do this all the time, but we don't do it enough. I feel like I'm flying blind, that I don't have the data that I need to really be effective. How about you? How often are you using IV Tylenol? For which cases, which doctors are using it? Is it working? Do you have outcomes data to say that it is better if you use IV Tylenol versus rectal Tylenol versus oral Tylenol? I don't have that data, someone does, and it's siloed away in their little data set. So across hospitals, we need to be sharing this data. And even within our own systems, that data lives in a very complicated uh, tool called Clarity, which is a database with tens of thousands of, of tables in it. And knowing where to find that data and how to get it out and what to match it up against isn't easy. And many systems do not have the resources to do this very well. Now, academic institutions, I think, are at a significant advantage. They probably have the data scientists, and they have cheap labor in the form of grad students and, and pre-med students and otherwise, where they can look at this data. But I love what, what the article covers here, which is, the, here's their final paragraph. Health systems can benefit greatly from following this analytics ascension model that they propose, but only if improvement teams follow each step. It can be tempting to skip steps or rush through a step in order to more quickly start implementation, but this risks misguided efforts and wasted resources. But I think the key thing is to start with the first step. Use our data to drive clinical and operational improvements. We don't do it enough. Last article. This one comes out of the Pew Research uh, site. Upcoming study aims to make electronic health records matching more accurate. So this is, uh, came out July 14th. What they're trying to do is to take records from one hospital and then a totally different system, a different hospital, that patient goes there. Now they got records in two different places. How do we match the patient to be able to have a comprehensive 360 view of the patient. So a couple lines from the article. For clinicians to seamlessly coordinate care for the patients they share with other practitioners, they must be able to accurately link medical records across facilities. An upcoming study will shed light on a key barrier to that linkage, the collection, formatting, and use of address data, phone numbers, and other demographic data that is typically compared to identify individuals. The study is being conducted by the Pew Charitable Trusts, along with a host of others, including Northwestern University as an academic institution. Um, and they are looking at how it's entered in the electronic health record and using the same data points, formatting them in a way that can allow different systems to better match 
these records among shared patients. So I think there's a lot of value in this. I know our health system may report the date as uh, spelling out the month of July and then put in uh, the number 20 and then the, the, the four digit year other systems. Maybe they're using 07, 20, 20. There's all kinds of ways of reporting this data and that can make matching difficult. So, hey, there's a way around this. It's called the National Patient Identifier, but that's not very popular. I, the privacy people go crazy when you mention these things. I think it would certainly help. I, I think your cell phone number could work as a unique identifier as well. People tend to keep those. Uh, I do think that this study, though, is needed. And if we can get better matching, if we can just coordinate our efforts across the EHR vendors to say, you know what, this is how we're going to use a date. This is what the date field looks like when we're talking about a birth date. Fantastic. We should do that. Another line from the article, just to wrap it up. Although nearly all hospitals and most office-based practices use EHRs to house patient information, one estimate found that attempts to link patient records held in different places may fail up to half the time. And that's not good. I don't think individual health systems need to take this on. This is where HIEs do a really good job. We have a very powerful, really great state HIE here in Maryland that takes all of our data. They do this patient matching thing. I don't know how they do it, what their algorithm is, but I'm sure it's complicated. But it has to be good because we have to match up this data accurately. You cannot take data and mix it into the wrong chart. It does happen. I've seen it happen. I saw uh, husband's data in the wife's chart and it was due to the to an HIE issue. But that should be rare. And matter of fact, it should never happen. That should be considered a patient safety event and we should do a root cause analysis on that just like we would for, for uh, other issues like a bed sore or what have you. So that's my two cents on matching patients and we're at our 20-minute mark, so I think we'll wrap it up for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode.